an article posted by a pastor named Eric Raymond titled, uh, Do Not Despise the Day of Small Things. And it was such an encouragement to me to remember that God is pleased to work in the seemingly small and insignificant ordinary things. So we may be tempted to, to think of a, a small, ordinary gathering like this together. The world would see it as insignificant, and we might even be tempted to see it as not that big of a deal, not that important in the great scheme of things. But we should not despise what God has given us here, what He has promised to do when His people gather together and sing together and pray together and read His Word and have His Word proclaimed. God is meeting with us. Right now, that is amazing that God would be pleased to speak through the reading and especially the preaching of his words. I just wanted to, I, I can't open my own mind to that, much less yours. It's something that God will have to do. But I wanted to kind of frame what it is that we are doing here this morning and every week when we gather. It is immensely important. Uh, we are in Genesis chapter 21 this morning. If you would, please go ahead and. Turn there in your Bible. Genesis 21. Sometimes in life we are expectant about a certain event or activity down the line, which if we could just have that thing or if that event would just take place, then everything would be well with our lives. Right? Everything would just be work out perfectly. All our issues, all our problems would be solved. Um, once, once I finally get to retire, I'll be set. I'll be able to enjoy life. If I could just get a raise, then all would be right with the world. Sometimes I'm tempted to think about money. If I could just have more money, my problems would be gone. If I could only take care of this problem or get rid of this sin, then my life would be perfect. But that doesn't actually match up with our own experiences in life because we've all experienced that we've all experienced getting what we thought would satisfy us or fulfill us or solve all of our problems and it didn't work out the way we thought now it's not that sometimes it might be the case that it, it makes things easier or it makes things better in some ways uh, selling our home and moving here would make life and ministry generally easier and better but when we begin to think that it will be the end all and be all and it will fulfill our every need we're beginning to make an idol of those future events something that will satisfy us when really it won't C.S. Lewis the the atheist turned Christian he didn't get everything right in fact he got a lot wrong but he's been really helpful to me in being a thinking Christian, and I really appreciate the common sense and thoughtful approach he takes concerning the Christian experience. He says, If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's what the Bible teaches us. As Christians, we are strangers and sojourners in a foreign land. We are citizens of heaven, not of the earth. And when we begin to think that something on this earth will give us what we need, or that we will finally find that one thing that will make everything right, 
We need to be reminded of this. Not yet. Not yet. One day it will happen. One day you will arrive at home. One day you will have all of your longings satisfied, but not yet. Not now. Not in this lifetime. And we see this experience in our passage for this morning. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for a son, waiting for years for a son, and the Lord finally fulfills his promise. But if they were thinking that this was the end of their own struggles and difficulties, they would be sorely disappointed. In fact, now that Abraham has a son, you know what's coming next. He's about to go through the greatest test of his entire life in offering up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. We'll see that in chapter 22. But he must proceed with faith. And that's exactly what he does in this passage. Let's look at that together as we read Genesis 21, 1 through 34. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And he said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For, though Isaac, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so will you deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. 
And Abraham said, I will swear. And when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs apart of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And God add his blessing to the reading of his word. In this passage, God fulfills his promise to bless Abraham and Sarah with his son. And yet, Abraham still must wait for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. The true offspring, the Messiah, was yet to be born. And, and Abraham is still living in a foreign land. And like Abraham, we too are in an age of exile. And the Apostle Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. And in the midst of this exile, we must live by faith in God, rejoicing in his fulfilled promises, expecting opposition in the here and now, and yet also clinging to faith for the fulfillment of promises yet to come. Now, to be in exile means to be expelled from your homeland, to be strangers, to be a foreigner outside of your native land. So you might be wondering where I'm getting this idea of exile from chapter 21. There's clearly the theme of exile for Ishmael. He is cast out of the covenant community. Hagar and Ishmael are exiled, banished. But it's interesting, what you might not see is that Abraham himself is in a sort of exile from the land that God has promised him. In chapter 20, we see the situation with Abimelech. And then bookended on the, at the end of chapter 21 is yet another situation with Abimelech. And the author is showing us here that the, the whole context of these chapters, the whole context of the fulfillment of the promise of a son and the banishment of Ishmael is within Abraham living in exile, Abraham living in the land of the Philistines. And we, like Abraham, are called to live by faith even as we are in this age of exile, as we are strangers in this world. But what does that mean? What does it mean to live by faith in the midst of this world? And so I want us to see that this text teaches us about life in exile. And particularly, I want to bring out three truths about how we respond, how we live in this life of exile. First, we must rejoice in God's fulfilled promises. Second, we must expect opposition. And third, we must rest in God's promises for the future. So first, we must rejoice in God's fulfilled promises even though we are in 
exile. In verses 1 through 7, we see this long-awaited fulfillment of a son to Abraham and Sarah. They didn't always wait patiently, and they doubted, and they tried to go their own way and fulfill things in their own means. And yet, they trusted in God to fulfill His promise. And it came to pass, surely as God had said. Do you notice in those first couple of verses, this refrain over and over, it happened just as God had said, just as God had promised. It happened just in the time that God had promised. One interesting thing about these verses, too, is just how unsurprised the author seems to be with the fact that God had kept his promises. After all the build-up, all the years of waiting, all the wrong turns, you would expect more than just seven verses explaining the fulfillment of this amazing promise. They had waited years for this, and God had done it. So take note here of the unsurprising faithfulness of God. It should be unsurprising to us that God keeps his promises. It's just a matter of fact. It's just the way he works. I have some friends who would make appointments with me, no one in this church, and I won't share your failed appointments in the future. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but it got to the point where, it, okay, it'd be, it was usually 2.30 on Tuesday, too. But it got to the point where I wouldn't expect them to show up. I just knew I better plan to do something else during that time. And I'm sure all of us have experienced that, and all of us have probably broken our promises, broken our word. And when it comes to people like that sometimes, what actually surprised me was when they were there. I was like, oh no, I had planned to do this. I know we had planned to meet, but I wasn't expecting you. But for God, the surprising thing, the, the unsurprising thing is that he keeps his promises. It is just, it's like clockwork. It isn't surprising. It is his modus operandi. That means his usual mode of operation. It's the typical way he works. You can count on it. It's a sure thing. As he has said it, it will surely come to pass. But it is also amazing. It should also cause us to rejoice. The fact that his promises, him keeping his promises is unsurprising, should not make us not rejoice in it. It should fill our hearts with wonder that God is so faithful, that he always keeps his promises. It's not enough, and we see here, this is exactly what Abraham and Sarah do, they rejoice. See, it's not enough just to acknowledge God's fulfilled promises, they're to be rejoiced in. And so we see, even though they are not in the promised land, even though there are promises yet to be fulfilled, even though they are in exile, we see Sarah's great rejoicing in these promises. Abraham does exactly what God has commanded him to do. He's growing in his own faithfulness. He names Isaac just as the Lord had commanded. He applies the covenant sign just as the Lord had commanded. And Sarah's laughter of unbelief comes a, becomes a laughter of rejoicing. She's overwhelmed with joy that God has made laughter for me. Remember the name Isaac. He laughs. God has made Isaac for me. He has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. 
she is overwhelmed in rejoicing the promises of God. I want you to consider for a moment if you have been guilty of acknowledging the promises of God and yet not rejoicing in them. Knowing that yes, he has kept his promise, but there's not an, an inward affection. There's not an inward rejoicing at the promises of God. It no longer amazes you. It no longer brings joy and delight to your heart. What is it that gives you joy, if that's the case? What is it that you rejoice in, where you can no longer rejoice in the kept promises of God? This is really something all of us consider, whether you're five years old or 90 years old. Think about this, children. What is it that brings you great joy? Because even now, in your younger years, you are, you are developing an appetite, either for the things of this world or for the things of God. What should cause your heart to rejoice are the promises of God, which He has made and kept for all who will come to Him in faith. We know that we are... Uh, from our own experience, from our own trials, from our own sufferings and broken relationships, that we are in an age of exile. Not everything is right with the world. But in the midst of this experience of exile, don't forget there is joy. Consider all the promises of God you have already tasted. You've already experienced. Even in this life. Think of... Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5, they were commanded to stop preaching in the name of Christ. And you know they couldn't do that, of course. And so they were beaten by the, the leaders, by the religious leaders. Beaten. Can you imagine being, being beaten? And how would you respond after being beaten and told no longer preach about Christ? You probably remember how they responded. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Remember the promises of God and rejoice in them. Some of the most well-known promises come from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the promise that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's the promise that God will generously give us everything that we need. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's the promise of everlasting love and acceptance before God. Neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He's trying to think of anything and everything in the entire universe and say, this cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we are promised that Jesus is returning again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, Seated at the right hand of God, 
set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These are promises not only to be received intellectually, but to receive, be received with great joy in the promises that we have already experienced. As exiles, we must rejoice in God's fulfilled promises. Second, we know that there is still suffering in this life. There's a long journey ahead of us, and so we must also expect opposition from the world. Isaac grows, and to celebrate his weaning, Abraham throws a big feast, but Sarah notices that Ishmael is laughing. And this is not the same kind of laughing that she has. This is a mocking of Isaac. He's making fun of his little brother in some way. Probably even more than more intense than simply making a joke or making fun of him. Sarah's response indicates uh, that it was intense. Whatever Ishmael did exactly, it made her feel like it was a threat to her newborn son and to the promised offspring of God. Cast him out. He will not share in this inheritance with my son. And of course, Abraham feels caught in the middle. This is his son he's been with for years. What is he going to do? He spent the last 16 or so years with him as a father. But interestingly, God affirms Sarah's course of action. Not her attitude, but her course of action. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be named. He's the one through whom the promise will be fulfilled. Not Ishmael, but as a comfort to Abraham... He says, I will indeed make Ishmael himself into a great nation. So Abraham obeys resolutely God and sends Hagar and Ishmael away. They wander into the desert and seem to get into trouble fairly quickly. They're hungry and they're thirsty. And it seems they've come to the end of their lives. But just when it seems like all hope is lost and Hagar and Ishmael are calling out for help, crying out to God, God hears the cries. God hears the cries of those who are weak and needy and has mercy. He always keeps his promises. And this is an amazing example, yet again, of God's mercy towards the helpless. He inclines his ear to the down and out, the outcast and the poor. So let this be an encouragement to you. If you feel like you are crying out to God, if you feel like no one hears you, if you feel like you are desperate for help and you're not getting any, God hears your cries. And if God hears the cries of a slave woman and her son, even though they are not a part of the covenant family, how much more will he hear the cries of those who are in his family? If we know how to give good gifts to our children and answer their cries for help, how much more does our Heavenly Father know how to answer our prayers? To give us good gifts. But this is more than just an amazing story of God's mercy to the helpless. Paul helps us here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Listen to this. Listen to how he interprets this passage. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? 
For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, he's talking about Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Our passage here shows separation, a division between these two groups of people, those who are of the covenant family and those who are not of the covenant family. Now, Paul's primary application of this is that those who are of the law or the Judaizers of his day would persecute the believers of grace through faith in Christ, just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Uh, and we should stand firm against any idea any opposition to the idea we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law. But I think there's a broader application here as well. I think the separation of Ishmael from Isaac is also an example of the kind of opposition believers will endure and should expect from the world, from an unbelieving world. It's something that we should expect. We are in an age of exile shouldn't take us by surprise. Just as God's faithfulness shouldn't take us by surprise, the world's opposition shouldn't take us by surprise. The Apostle Peter tells us, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And maybe it's difficult for us to understand and expect this because we generally, as Christians, have held a privileged position in our country, in our nation. We haven't had to experience persecution like many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world have. Brothers and sisters in China or Palestine, or Iran, or Africa. And if and when we begin to share in the sufferings of Christ here in America, consider this, we will be entering into fellowship with our brothers and sisters around the world. Well, they have experienced for years. It should come as no surprise to us when we face opposition or even persecution. Now, I'm not one who thinks the sky is falling and that we're going to experience persecution tomorrow. We may. It may come quickly. But regardless of it, if it comes in five days or if it comes in 50 years, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We should expect opposition from those who are not a part of the covenant community. 
How should we respond as opposition increases? What should we do? Peter again tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Did you, do you understand that? Peter says the end of all things is at hand. So how should you respond in light of that? Go nuts and store up everything that you can uh, for days of persecution? He says keep loving each other. Love each other more and more. Invest in one another more and more, whether there's persecution, whether there's opposition, whether there's not. Invest in one another more and more. Love one another. It's not what we would expect. Consider what this might mean for you and for our, our fellowship here. It might mean that you just take more initiative in getting to know one another and investing in one another's lives and inviting one another into our homes over for meals and inviting one another into our lives. It might mean going out with a different family each Sunday for lunch. Or it may be something as simple as sitting in a different place in church that you might sing praises to God beside someone different, beside another brother or sister in Christ. That you might hear His Word together. As exiles, we must expect opposition from the world. And as a result, we should commit to one another more and more. But our last truth is that as exiles, we must rest in God's promises for the future. In verse 22, the author takes us back to the situation involving Abimelech. Remember, he was the king of Gerar we encountered last week, who Sarah took as his wife. Uh, who took Sarah as his wife, because Abraham lied to him and said she was his sister. And these accounts of Abimelech are bookends of this unit, showing us the context of all that's going on. Even though in the midst of this exile in a foreign land, others take notice that Abraham was blessed by God. That's what Abimelech says in verse 22. I, I can see that God is with you in everything that you do. And because of that, he wants Abraham to make this treaty with him. No more falsehoods, no more lies. Let's treat one another fairly. And so Abraham agrees to it. And then Abraham takes this opportunity to bring up an instance of unfairness on the part of his men. Apparently, some of his men, Abimelech's men, had taken over one of his wells. Abimelech claims to have no knowledge of it, so they enact another treaty, another covenant, basically saying both of them acknowledge that this well in dispute belongs to Abraham. So by accepting Abraham's gift of these lambs, Abimelech is agreeing to the terms. And then Abraham plants a tree, perhaps as a monument to his own ownership, and he worships the Lord, the everlasting God. God has promised offspring and a land to Abraham. He's received the down payment of the offspring, but he's still holding out hope for the land. 
he continues to sojourn for many days, the author tells us, in the land of the Philistines. But it appears that he's doing so with expectant and patient faith, worshiping God, setting up a monument, even in a foreign land. And it's this expectation of fulfilled future promises which sustains him. It shouldn't surprise us that God has kept his promises in the past. It shouldn't surprise us when we face opposition in the present. And it shouldn't surprise us when God fulfills his promises in the future. God's fulfilled promises of yesterday, in fact, assure us of God's fulfilled promises for tomorrow. It's not simply enough to rejoice in the fulfilled promises of God for today and yesterday. We must also rest in the promises of God for the future. This means, among other things, that we will have a hopeful mindset. Not that things that won't, won't be bad, not that we won't have to face terrible things like cancer or foreclosure or bankruptcy or other broken relationships. But we have this hopeful mindset because we know that God has been faithful in the past and He will be faithful in the future. I love the brevity of Psalm 117. It makes a quick, memorable point. Listen, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples, for great is His steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. We praise the Lord not because we are having our best life right here, right now. Not because we are in the promised land now. Not because we are strong enough to endure, endure this life of exile. We praise the Lord because... Great is his steadfast love towards us, and his faithfulness endures forever. We praise him because although we are like grass which fades away, he is the everlasting God who always keeps his promises. So let's pray together and thank him for his faithfulness. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for keeping your promises. That as we consider your fulfilled promise to Abraham and Sarah of a son that you have fulfilled it ultimately in Christ who died for sinners who was cast out who was exiled so that we might be brought in as members of the family of God Father, we praise that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in the promises that you have made and kept and the promises that we know you intend to keep. Father, I pray that as each one of us might be going through different trials or difficulties, you would cause us to cry out to you like Hagar and Ishmael. That we would remember you are the God who hears. We pray that you would help us to set our sights not on the things of this earth, not on what can fulfill us here and now, but on you and on your faithfulness so that we, would might, we might persevere, we might press on through this difficult age of exile. Hold us up by your grace. Hold us up by your strength. We pray this in Christ's name.